Mm-mm. Good morning, City Light. How we doing? Good? Can hear you. I can't see you, but I can hear your voices. I know there's people in the room here with me. Hey, my name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you brought your Bible, go to the Gospel of Luke. We are preaching through this book uh, that details to us the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so go to Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And before we go anywhere, I want to prove a little point to you by reading the first two verses together. So Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1, here's what it says. And do not hold me accountable to say any of these names correctly, okay? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. How would you apply that to your life? <laughs> Tell us, preacher. So let me, let me just uh, appeal to you that... It's verses like these in the Gospel of Luke that are a gift to us for one reason. Uh, They give us details of real people in real places at real times that show us that this is a real story, church. Luke is really an historian for us. He's doing the work to tell us, hey, uh, I want you to cast off any notion that what you're going to read in the pages of this Gospel— are anything of a myth, a fable, a legend. Uh, This is history. These are real things that actually happened. And I want to remind you in in Luke chapter 1, at the very beginning of this this, uh, book, he says, the reason I write this to you, the reason I pen this, is I want to give you an orderly account of what has happened so that you might have certainty. Okay? Now, speaking of certainty, you know what you people are? You're a bunch of hypocrites. You go to church on Sunday, and then you forget about God the rest of the week. You're living a double life. You say you belong to God, but then you secretly go and indulge in all kinds of sin. You live in your nice big houses. You drive your fancy cars. You don't do anything to help the poor. You're snakes. I mean, do you really think that God is going to save you because you've been baptized or you belong to an evangelical church? Turn away from your sins or you're going straight to hell. This is how the author Philip Ryken likens the preaching of John the Baptist. He pulled no punches. He shows up on the scene and develops quite a following in Israel. Um, If you don't know this, he's the son of Zechariah, as the text mentions. He's a cousin to Jesus, and he is Jesus' forerunner. It was said long ago, hundreds of years prior to this, from the prophet Isaiah, that one would come like a voice crying in the wilderness. 
We're going to read about that in a moment. But as we examine the ministry of John the Baptist this morning, the reason it's so harsh and the reason it's so straightforward and the reason you're going to see things in here that might um, poke and prod at you and I in ways that uh, hurt our pride is because of the gravity of the situation. There has been prophetic silence for hundreds of years. People of God have not had a prominent prophet show up on the scene and say anything to represent God. And he had made covenant promises that he would save his people, that he would send a chosen one, a Messiah. In the Gospel of Luke, we are right in the middle of a time when this is actually now unfolding. And John is the one who God tasks to show up and prepare the way for Jesus. And if you remember John the Baptist, he had animal skins for clothing and probably had like really natty, ratty hair. He ate locusts and honey for his meals. Some of the health enthusiasts in the room are like, we should all be doing more of that, actually. Um, <laughs> people don't know the nutritional value. So let's pick it up in verse 3, and let's just see what John did. Here, here it says in verse 3, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And only Luke includes verse six, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In the ancient world, it was customary for um, people to get word from a forerunner, a herald, if you will, that a king or an emperor or someone of uh, prominent stature was coming to their city or their town. And so what would happen was a bit of a uh, community project where, you know, imagine here in Omaha, it wouldn't be hard to find a lot of potholes. Begin to fill those up. You begin to bring down some of the high hills and crests and, and any area where it feels like the road is not smooth and there's a, a nice, easy, clean approach for that prominent figure. Um, you get out and you, you make way. You prepare straight paths. You straighten what's crooked. You, uh, you, know, you lower the hills. You, you up the valleys. You make it an easier approach for the person that's coming. Now, what John the Baptist is doing in these moments and what Isaiah was prophesying, believe it or not, was not that this John the Baptist was going to come and do some big community project now, some social works project that's going to change all the roads leading into this place. Now, he's speaking of the human heart, speaking of the heart. He's inviting us to envision our heart, the, the, the seat of all emotion and conviction and belief, um, as a, a, a place that has highways and byways. And at the very center of that place is a throne where when humanity was formed and created, one person was to be seated there. Sin came into the world. Many other things have um, rotated through that seat on the throne of the heart. And the people of Israel were 
desperate for, even if they didn't know it, a good, holy, righteous, generous, just king to come and make his throne in the heart. I've titled this morning's message, A Change of Heart. Change of Heart. Because that is what sets Christianity apart from anything else in our world. That's what sets our God apart from any other world religion's God. We're going to see in our text today that the message John came proclaiming tells us a lot about the message of Jesus' life. It was meant to prepare people for who they were about to meet and what they were about to understand and make sense of. And the message, the good news of the gospel. What I love about this first section is that verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. From that, we learn a couple of things. Number one, um, the salvation of God, church, is a person. It's a person. It is not, as we will see, anything that you and I do. It's no religious practice that we participate in. It's not a church that we go to. It's not some kind of denomination or affiliation that we have. It is a person. Forgiveness of sin, new life, eternal life is found only in the person and work of Jesus Christ, which the rest of this account will tell us more and more about. But the second thing is this. The message of Jesus is for everyone. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let me speak first, just for a moment to you. If you find yourself in this room and you would not say you're a religious person, you're not really a church person, maybe you got here this morning because somebody invited you, life is hard right now and so you wanted spiritual encouragement, whatever the reason might be. Your marriage needs help. I don't know what it is because I, I'm, I don't know you. There is not a hierarchy of people that the message of Jesus Christ is for. It is for everyone. There is no barrier that is social, uh, economic, ethnic. There's no barrier that is religious and whatever your church background or tradition is. If you are a human being, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing and wholeness and newness of life for you in Jesus Christ. This is the good news. Um, so what I want to do is I, I want to keep reading because there is no kind of person that the gospel cannot reach, but there is a kind of person that, that the work of Jesus cannot save. And so pick it up with me, verse 7. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This is a picture of God's wrath, church. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The kind of person that John the Baptist showed up targeting with his message was a Jewish person who felt secure when they shouldn't have. A person with bad motives who says, well, this guy's baptizing people with water. He's doing something that helps them feel like they're right with God. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to participate in this baptism, but don't expect my life, my heart, my mind to really change about anything. And John knew this. And so John is calling out these people and saying, who warned you of the wrath to come? That's the only reason you're here. The only reason you're showing up is because you want some sort of security, some sort of blanket of of protection. Nothing else really matters. You just don't want to have to go through the pain. You just don't want to have to deal with the the, the wrath. You don't want to have to deal with the punishment. You don't have to deal with the justice. But you still want your life. You still want to be your God. You still want to love everything else but him. This is the problem. And John was calling these people out and Begs the question, doesn't it? What about us? Today, 21st century, are we accustomed to presuming our right standing with God because of our church history, our Bible knowledge, our heritage, our own baptism? The truth is God sees the heart and he knows real repentance. He knows sorrow over sin, and he knows what it means for a person to actually turn away from that. God sees right through us and gives us a sobering warning of wrath. He's basically saying people who are humble enough to desire a right relationship with me, who don't want, don't long for the things that The world feeds them things that are that which I hate and I say is unrighteous and evil. People who come to me and don't just say, I don't want to deal with the consequences of my sin anymore, but people who come to me in humility and say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. I don't want that anymore. These are the people whom Jesus shows up for. You know the message hits like a ton of bricks because multiple classes of people are going to come to John in verses 10 through 14 and they're going to ask him, what shall we do? Like, I believe what you're saying. What, sh- what are we supposed to do? And so I want to spare you all the details, but I want you to imagine uh, people coming to John and John answering not with a prayer to pray, but with a new life to live. He's going to speak to Roman soldiers. He's going to speak to tax collectors. He's going to speak to people who are saying, practically, what does this mean for my life? And it's funny, the stuff that John targets in those people's lives, which is just as relevant to your life and mine today, really revolves around kind of two subjects. The first is their love for other people. He's going to actually say, if you're about it, Start loving others the way that you would want to be loved. 
Stop cheating people. Stop manipulating people. Stop just using the people around you in your life for your own gain. Like give your life away and you'll find it. And the second thing is he talks about wealth. He talks about how a person leverages what they have. And when you put those two together, it makes for a person who is loving, a person who is generous, a person who is not fixated on what they do or do not have, what they do or do not possess, a person whose life is not marked by discontentment because of the thing they haven't achieved yet or the thing they haven't purchased yet or the next step they haven't gone to in that endeavor yet. It's just a person who is free to love and serve and forget oneself for the sake of others. This is the life that Jesus came to produce. And here's what's amazing, is as you keep reading, John is going to answer the question, how? How? Because if we had another guy showing up on the scene to just say, hey, you need to change your life. Like if I'm standing on this stage and I'm just looking at everyone in this room and I'm saying, hey, you just need to stop doing that thing. Hey, you should just start doing this thing. What do I sound like? I sound like another voice in millions of voices, especially in the United States, and another voice in tens of possibly hundreds of thousands of books that have been written that tell you how to help yourself, that tell you the things you need to do to change and the steps that you need to, you know, the formula that you need to follow in order to get to from X to Y or A to B or whatever you want to call it. The message of Jesus Christ looks like this. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. Church, that's an external baptism. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Pause right there. Students would have rabbis back then. And they would follow their teacher and there was typically, generally, no tuition. But it was understood that students would do menial tasks of service for their master, their teacher, in order to serve him. There is one thing in Jewish tradition that a student would still not be compelled to do is still beneath a student of a rabbi, and it was not expected. And it was to unlace the sandals. John is here on the scene saying, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Did y'all, did, listen, John's not some obscure guy out in like the wilderness, and there's like 10 people who are sitting listening to him. What an interesting message. Th- this guy had like thousands, possibly tens of thousands of people coming out of Israel, listening to him, following him. I mean, he had prominence, a massive ministry. And he's saying, I can't even untie the sandal. And and then listen to this, Gospel of John. What would Jesus do right before he gave his life? He would stoop down, take off the sandals of his disciples and wash their feet. This guy is different. This God is different, so different. And another way is different is how John continues. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Ooh. 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It is one thing to have dirt washed off your body as a symbol of you turning from sin. It is another thing altogether for God to fundamentally change who you are as a person. For him to take residence in your heart and give life where there was death. The message of Christianity, we say this all the time, but it always bears repeating. It is not about a person going from making a certain kind of decision to a different kind of decision. Or a person who goes from being kind of immoral to a person who's more moral. Or a person who's pretty irreligious deciding, I want to take up more religion or spirituality in my life. The message of Christianity is you and I are dead spiritually, dead and dry. There's nothing in us that longs for and craves and wants God. But Jesus comes and his spirit changes us and brings life where there's death. He actually brings spiritual vitality and a hunger and a thirst and an appetite for more than what we've been living our lives for. Our whole life lives under a cloud of darkness. Our whole world is under the rule of the evil one until Jesus shows up and he intervenes in our life and he gives us eyes to see what we didn't see before. He gives us awareness of spiritual realities that we did not have before. And he immerses us, covers us, in his Holy Spirit. He gives his Holy Spirit to us to be our friend, our companion, our guide, our comforter, our counselor, to give closeness and intimacy in a way that the people of God were without for so long. I want to finish this morning by just taking in the last scene here of chapter 3, because I think it might be one of the most beautiful pictures in the whole Bible. And all that we would take it in this morning, church. I want you to read with me, um, beginning in verse 21. When all the people were baptized, and look who shows up on the scene. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens were opened. Before I keep reading, are you listening right now? <laughs> oh, what is about to happen before our eyes in this text is so incredible. Look with me. Verse 22. Like, first of all, sorry, I, this is just amazing. In verse 21, when the heavens were opened, that is literal. Like, the heavens actually did open. The skies actually did clear and part. And when that happens in our Bible, anytime that imagery is used, God is about to speak. God's about to say something. Revelation is happening. And I want you to imagine 
hearing his audible voice. If you're on the hillside there, you're at the river, and you just see all of this happen, Jesus is baptized. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I know those might just be words to you, but do you know what that teaches us? It lets us into who our triune God is. God is one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Try to wrap your mind around that. Good luck. He never began. God has never not been. And from eternity past, a love and a communion and a fellowship and a friendship has existed in what we call the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have enjoyed relationship with one another. It is out of the overflow of that relationship that God decides to create. And the crown of his creation is those of us who are made in his image, men and women. The notion that God would have created anything because he was lonely and needed friendship and companionship is false. The notion that God created us in order for us to take part in who he is, life itself, is true. And in this moment, we're seeing a picture of God's love manifest in Jesus. And can I tell you something? Jesus Christ did not need to be baptized. God, in the flesh, on earth, was without sin. He did not have any sin. He didn't need to be baptized, but he chose to be baptized. And it brings to mind the old prophecy, again from Isaiah, that said that this Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. This right here is the first picture of Jesus who is both fully God and fully man relating to us, living our life, stooping down low to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's the first step of him taking on human form and representing you and I before God the Father. The fact that he would even do this, grace, 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 grace. I wonder this morning, do you recognize how beautiful the grace of God is? Like in our world, there is nothing like this grace. Uh, just this, this picture of a God who creates us and we sin against him. We rebel against his rule and reign. We seek to rival him by being our own God. And, and quite frankly, we don't really care that much about it. Like we do it willfully. We live a life that's ignorant of him. We know better than him, we think. And God sees us in this mess of sin. He knows 
judgment is coming. He knows justice is coming. And so what does he do? Divine wrath is met with divine love through divine self-sacrifice. I love the way that R.C. Sproul says this. The glory of the gospel is this. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has saved us. This is a love like no other love. This is a perfect love that casts out fear. This is a love that holds and keeps you. This is a love that even while you and I are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a love that only begins to be expressed right here in chapter 3. I cannot wait to explore more of it in this gospel. But here's what I want to finish with this morning. I just want to ask the question, whether you have been following Jesus for some time or whether you're a person in the room who's never bowed your knee to Jesus, I know what it's like to think and dwell on a million different things about God. I know what it's like to entertain a lot of theological questions about who he is and why he would allow certain things or do certain things or not intervene in certain things or whatever it might be. But the reason that these pages are here for us and the story of Jesus is here for us is so that we might not have any question, any question, any reservation, any doubt, any wondering, any confusion about the love of God. God is love. And if you are a person who has placed your faith in Jesus, he has purchased you with his blood. He would go to a cross and he would bear your sin and he would become sin. Who knew no sin? So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. I am desperate for a church where the news of Jesus atoning for our sin never, ever, 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 ever gets old. I'm desperate for a church where it's never not beautiful. I want to be a part of a church where it's the greatest thing ever and it's celebrated every single day and we don't need to search and dig for more because somehow that's not enough. You and I are dead in our trespasses and sins and God who never had to do anything moved in love to forgive us and he bore all the cost of it that we might have eternal life, that our relationship might be restored to him, that he might start breaking things down in here and making them new and changing our appetites and desires and our vision for our life. You tell me a better gift that can be offered to you as a human being than God reconciling you to himself by himself. I want to just pray. Would you pray with me?
Jesus, you are worthy of all of our repentance. You're worthy of all of our turning. You are beautiful. We are in awe of you. That you, God, would become man. That you would be able to empathize with us in our weakness. That you would be subject to every temptation. You would be subject to trial. And you would never sin. That you would go to a cross for the joy set before you with us in mind and you would be crucified who are we that you are mindful of us I pray right now God please draw near to every man woman and child in this room and if our vision of your love and your grace and your mercy has been stunted at all. Open the floodgates this morning. Remind us, God. Bring to our remembrance our lostness apart from you. Help us to see. Oh God, that we would make way in our hearts, straight paths for your presence. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we get to share in your love. We are not worthy. What a blessing it is. In your name we pray. Amen.